So we're going to start in verse uh, 11, work our way down to verse 21, I believe it is, at the end there. Um, <clears throat> we only have two weeks left in, in 2 Corinthians. So this week, and then well, really just next week, we'll wrap it up with chapter 13. We've been in this, this letter for, I think, five or maybe six months. We're getting on that. We've been in it for a while. So I wanted to just quickly tell you where we're going next, because next week we'll wrap this up. Um, so after this, we're going to do three short series, okay, like throughout the, the spring here, end of, end of winter, early spring, getting us into summer. We're just going to do three things, a um, couple of books and one just kind of topical series to, to help bridge the gap there. We've been in really long books of the Bible the last year and a half, so we're going to take it a little bit more rapid fire and take on some shorter things, change the pace a little. Um, so the very next thing will be a topic that, we're gonna, that we think needs to be addressed in our church. And, and that has to do with how do we break free from uh, sin and temptation? Like what kind of tactics does the Bible give us to fight our, our uh, sinful nature and um, the temptations of the devil? So we are going to do a series. We're going to call it Unchained um, and just kind of talk through what the scriptures have to say on that subject for a few weeks, for probably five weeks or so. And then we're going to do uh, Lamentations, uh, which is going to be a great book. You guys probably never heard Lamentations preached in your life. I don't think I have either. So I, we're going to have a great time with that one. And then, um, then we're going to do Philemon, uh, which is a short New Testament letter that Paul wrote. Very, very short. So, so yeah, that's where we're going for the, after we wrap up 2 Corinthians. That's the plan, at least. Um, all right, that'll get us into summer. But with this said... Um, Paul here is finishing up this letter. He's, we're in the, the very final thoughts. Um, and, and here's what we've seen. I mean, as, we've, as we walk through this letter, as we've walked through it over the last five months or so, uh, as we've looked at 1 Corinthians and have an, a, a grasp on what he's said to them earlier, um, man, it would just have been really easy for Paul to walk away from these people, right? They're, they're awful. Like, they really are. They're awful. And so are we, by the way, but that, you know, it, it, it's easier to point our fingers at them than at us. So, but they really treated Paul very poorly. Uh, they should have loved Paul. They should have respected him. They should have wanted to hear more from him, but they really treated him badly. And I think there's, a, there's a so much in this letter that is, that is good and needs to be applied to our lives, but I think the overarching thing that we can see here. Is, is that Paul does not respond to these people the way they deserve to be responded to. He, he doesn't treat them the way they deserve. And that's grace, you guys, right? Like fundamentally, that's grace, that God treats us better, vastly better than we deserve to be treated. Because what does the Bible say we deserve? That we deserve to die, for our sins. The Bible says that. That's what sin has earned. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is in Christ Jesus. We see the grace of God uh, in giving us what we do not deserve, giving us life and hope and eternity with him. And while Paul cannot give those things to the Corinthians himself, his life points to Jesus. 
in all the things that he's doing and treating them. It would have been so easy for Paul to just say to them, you know what, forget you guys, you're the worst, I'm out of here, have a nice life. He could have done that. And he probably would have been, in some ways, justified to do that. He could have washed his hands of these people. But he doesn't. He sticks with them. He stays with them. He continues to... to chase after them and and tries to bring them back. Um, And the reason for that is because Paul really loves them. He loves them because Christ loves them. He doesn't reject them because Jesus doesn't reject them. He, He doesn't abandon them to their own devices because God doesn't abandon us to our own sinful inclinations. I think that really is the message of 2 Corinthians. It's not that Paul is in any way our Savior, right? Paul is pointing us to our Savior. But his life is not perfectly, but really well demonstrating that this is who Jesus is and what he's done. And so his response to the hardships he's faced in Corinth, his response to their attacks on him, his response is not that of total frustration and abandonment, although he does get frustrated with them. He is a man. Jesus also gets frustrated, you know, as well. We see that in his earthly life. It's not that frustration is outside of um, God's heart and character, but, but, but there's a lot more patience and grace in Paul than these people deserve. And so as we get to the end of this letter, we're really seeing that. We're seeing the, the reaffirmation of Paul's concern and love and care for the church. And he's really going to walk us through several, quite a few key markers or indicators of gospel-centered love that flow from the heart of Jesus Christ. And, and so that's what we're going to see for, from this passage into chapter 13. That's really going to be kind of the the crescendo of this, of this letter as we conclude it, it's going to be, here's how I can love you because Jesus loves you in these ways. So let's get into it. We've got today five, um, five markers or indicators of, of a heart that loves people because Jesus loves people. And we can look at what those are as we look at Paul's concern for the Corinthians. All right, let's look at 11 through 13. Here's the first one. Um, He says, I've been a fool. You forced me to it. For I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The sign of a true apostle was performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders, and mighty works. For in, what, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. All right, so Paul starts in verse 11 with this, this call, or this, this uh, explanation that says, I've been a fool. What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about how he's been having to boast this whole time through chapter, you know, most of 11, all of 11, uh, he's been bragging for the first half of 12 as well. He's been bragging, but not about his accomplishments, not about his, his credentials as much as his weaknesses, 
because he's trying to put himself up against the super apostles and show that he's a different kind of man. But he still realizes that this is foolishness. Like this is all just, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't be acting like this. But he says, you forced me to it. You forced me to it. You, you kind of backed me into a wall and I've had to boast about things to, to stay um, relevant to you in some ways. And so he's just acknowledging that out of the gate here that you guys are kind of crazy. This shouldn't be having to happen. You should, he says, have commended me because I'm not inferior to these super apostles. Now he's, we've been talking about these super apostles for a few weeks now and they weren't super apostles. He's using this term as a way to mock them uh, because they're setting themselves up as if they're more important than Paul or have more spirituality than Paul or are smarter than Paul. And so he's using that reality to just kind of make fun of them by calling them super apostles. And he says, I'm not inferior to them. Even though I'm nothing, I'm not, I'm not less than they are. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, here's, I think, the key to, uh, to the first point he makes the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. I think that's the key. Paul says, here's why I'm not inferior to these super apostles. Because when I was with you, when, when he was working to plant the church in Corinth, remember Paul founded that church. He, he helped to establish that church. He got these people to, to meet Jesus and to bring them in to a fellowship. He says, when I was with you, I performed the signs of a true apostle. In other words, God used the apostles to do miraculous things in people's presence to demonstrate who, who Jesus is and the power that he has. And so the, the apostles had these abilities to, to perform signs and wonders and amazing things because that's, there was no New Testament scripture written, right? There was nothing that was, was confirmed in any of that. So it was all fresh and new and, and the, just like the Lord Jesus did miracles. So his apostles continued to do that in the apostolic and early church age. Um, so Paul says, we, I did all this, but look at the phrase he used. He, he did all these things with utmost patience. Some translations use perseverance. I think that's, um, there, there's kind of an, there's kind of both of these things. Patience and perseverance have different nuance, but they, they, the, the Greek word that's translated here as patience and some of your translations, perseverance, it carries on this meaning of being uh, an enduring person, being willing to endure. And I think the best made-up word that I could come up with is stick to Ever heard that? stick to It's not a real word, but it means you stick with something, you hang in there, and that's what Paul's trying to get at. He's like, look, I did all these things among you and I, and I wasn't impatient about you. I wasn't impatient about what was happening. I was going to stick with it, stick in this thing with you, endure. And, and I think that's the key though, that, that Paul is demonstrating that love centered around Jesus Christ is patient. Right? That's, that's actually what he says in 1 Corinthians 13. The very first thing he says about love is love is patient. 
and love is kind, and it goes on and on, right? But patient is the first thing that, that comes out of love. And Paul is saying, I demonstrated patience in my ministry with you. You saw it. You, you were witnesses of it. You saw my stick to with you guys in all these things as I, as I brought the gospel of Jesus Christ into your, your lives. And I think, I think we need to recognize that while Paul's ministry was unique in that way, the, the idea of patience with people in, in the church and in life and in ministry is not unique. This is, this is necessary for us as well. We have to be patient with people. The local church needs to be patient with people because love does not force people to move at our pace. Love doesn't force people. We don't drag people at the pace that we're running. If we love someone, we may have to slow down and walk with them patiently, graciously, slowly at the pace that they're at. And one of the things that I have tried to talk about a lot here over the last five years or so is that gospel doctrine leads to gospel culture. That's like our, that's like our phrase here. We, I didn't make that up. I stole that from someone and with permission. But that, that's, that's the idea, right? We, we, we want to see what Jesus has done for us lead to how we live with each other. And there's been an equation that has helped me think through this. And again, I didn't invent this. This is coming from Ray Ortland, a pastor in Nashville. But this is a really helpful equation to help us understand the ministry of the church. And I've used this at different times throughout the years. I haven't talked about it much lately. But here's the equation. That gospel culture is, it flows out of this equation. Gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel, so lots of good news about Jesus, plus safety, so that means we, we give each other a, a safe place to acknowledge and be confronted with and deal with our sinfulness. Right? We, we don't punish people for admitting that they've done wrong things because we want people to admit they've done wrong things because we've all done wrong things. It's not helpful to push them out when they acknowledge that. That's Good. That's the first step to repentance is confess, confessing, right? We need to give them a safe environment to do that. And then the third equation is we need to give people time. People don't change overnight. People are not going to suddenly become Jesus because you yelled at them about something. People grow, but they grow slowly. In fact, it takes a lifetime and then some for us to become Jesus, like Jesus. We're never going to be Jesus, but we will have his character and, and we will be made like him. That's the promise. We'll all get there at the end, but we're not there yet. Not a one of us is. So we need gospel plus safety plus time. And time is the patience part. Right? Being willing to walk with someone over the course of time is not easy. It's not enjoyable at times, but it needs to be there. It need, it's a vital part of the equation for a gospel culture to flourish. Um, Paul Tripp, so there's a different Paul here we're going to quote. Um, Paul Tripp wrote this. I, I was just struck by it this week. He said, for the believer, for the believer in Jesus, 
harsh, critical, impatient, and irritated responses to others are always connected to forgetting or denying who we are and what we've been given in Jesus. He says it's very clear that no one gives grace better than a person who is deeply convinced of his own need for grace, who is cogently aware of the grace he's been given and is being given. So Paul Tripp's point here is that when we respond out of harshness, criticism, impatience, or irritation towards another believer who is struggling with sin, or for that matter, towards an unbeliever who of course is struggling with sin because they're an unbeliever, we're always forgetting or denying that we've been given grace and so we have to extend grace. That's, that's his point in that quote. And I think what Paul is pointing out here is that yes, he's certainly frustrated by the Corinthians. Who wouldn't be frustrated with them? But at the same time, he's rooting back to the reality of the the patience of his ministry, that he needs to be and continues to be patient with these people. That's why he hasn't thrown in the towel and given up on them. If Paul wasn't currently right now as he's writing these words, being patient with the Corinthians, he wouldn't even be writing to them. He'd just be like, ah, go have fun with the super apostles, you guys. He'd be doing that. But he's not. He's continuing to be patient with them. And we need to see patience grow in our lives. We need to see patience grow in our church. We need to see it be a a marker, a signpost of gospel-centered love because love is patient. Because ultimately Jesus is patient with us. There's There's a verse in the New Testament that says that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. That word faithful means he's going to stick with us to the end. That's patience flowing out of the heart of God. So we should see patience flow out of our hearts towards others. So there's the first sign of love that Paul points out in his own life and ultimately from Jesus towards them. Now let's look at the next one. Verse 14 and 15 says this, For the third time I'm ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? Um, so kind of go, going back to verse 13 for just a minute, because I think it helps us understand uh, verse 14 and 15. I kind of skipped past this. Um, it says, Paul writes, For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? And so in what, basically he's pointing back to them and saying, In what ways are you less favored than the rest of the church. Perhaps Paul's addressing something specific here. Perhaps in one of the letters he, they wrote to him, maybe they expressed, you know, you, Paul, you really seem to care more about those people in Macedonia than us. And maybe they're expressing some resentment towards him because he's not 
showing them favoritism or whatever it is. And Paul, it seems like he's addressing a specific thing. We don't know what that thing is exactly. But he asks the question, in what ways were you favored less than the rest of the churches? Except, he says, that I myself did not burden you. So in what ways were you treated differently than the churches, except that I didn't make you give me any help financially as I did ministry. He's like, all the other churches have chipped in to help the Apostle Paul eat and live and and do ministry. The Corinthians, no, no, no. Paul didn't take a dime from them because he didn't want that to be a stumbling block in their life, right? And so he's going, how did I treat you differently except by being nicer to you because I didn't make you give me anything? And then he says, forgive me this wrong, as if uh, he's obviously being sarcastic there. He didn't do any wrong to them. So he's just trying to point out like, no, 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 no. You guys, you guys are being ridiculous. But then he says, verse 14, let's go back there. He says, so here for the third time, I'm ready to come to you. And I'm not going to burden you. He's sticking with his plan. He's not going to require anything of them. And look at why he says that. I love this. For I seek not what is yours, but you. That is gospel centrality at work in Paul's life, isn't it? See, Paul had visited the Corinthians at least twice. Well, yeah, twice by this point, because he's saying he's ready for a third time. Uh, So the first visit was the 18 months or so that he spent in Corinth planting the church. He came back at some point after that to check in on them. And the second visit, we know from Scripture, was rough, really bad. Paul called it a sorrowful visit. Probably not one that would have made us want to go back. But Paul doesn't give up. He's planning a third visit. And why is that? Well, he says it. It's not because of what they have, but it's because of them. I don't have, I don't want what is yours, but you. That really is the gospel. Because when we look at how Jesus treats us, here's the amazing thing. Jesus has no agenda to get something from you. He just wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants you. Because he doesn't need anything from you. So why would he have an agenda to get something from you? God doesn't need your money. And I think God would rather you keep it if, it, if that's a stumbling block. God doesn't need your service. Paul says in, to, the, to the people in Athens in, in the book of Acts that God is not dwelling in temples made by hands as though he needed anything. And of course, Paul's setting God up in contrast to the Roman or to the Greek gods that had these great big temples and all these people working in those temples to feed and care for these statues that supposedly were gods. And, and Paul says, the true God doesn't need anything from you because he gives to all people life and breath and everything. So God has no agenda to get something from you, but he does want your heart. He wants you. 
And, and this is demonstrated by Jesus in the story of the prodigal son as well, right? Where the son starts to come back, but while he's a long way off, the father sees him. And what does he do? Does he sit there, arms crossed on the porch, waiting for his son to get, go through the full trudge and get there? No, it says he runs to him. The father runs to the son as he's a long way off and he embraces him and welcomes him home. That's how God operates. He's not after anything from us. He just wants us. And Paul says that's the same for him. He, he doesn't seek anything from the Corinthians. He just wants them. He wants to be in relationship with them. And, and he says that he, he basically in verse 14 here talks about how Children aren't supposed to, you know, save money for their parents. Parents are supposed to save money for their kids, right? Like, there, there's, a, there's a dimension there where, okay, baby's born. They're not out in, like, the, the sweatshop raising, making money for you, right? That's, that's not how it works. We care for our children as their children. And then, of course, we hope as they get, get old and are self-sufficient, they can take care of us in our old age, right? But that's not the, but that's, there's, a, there's a proper order to things, and Paul's saying, okay, I'm, I'm your spiritual father. I'm your father in the faith, in a sense, and I'm going to care for you. You don't have to worry about me. And then he says in verse 15, look at this. He says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Paul is saying, I'm willing to lay it all down for you guys. I'll, I'll sacrifice every dime I have to be with you. I will sacrifice my very life for you. That is how Jesus operates. So what's the point here? What's the message? If love is patient, we also are seeing here that love pursues. Love doesn't force the other person to come to us. We go to them. We pursue them. Paul is ready for another visit. He's ready for round three. And he's going to acknowledge here towards the end of this passage that he's ready for it to be a rough visit again. <laughs> he doesn't have any like crazy high hopes that this is going to be good. We're going to see that in a moment. But, but he's ready to go because God pursues us. He initiates the faith that we express in him. He gives that to us as a gift. He's the one who's the great, the great pursuer. And so because of that, out of God's heart, in that way, we become pursuers of others as well. We let them, uh, we, we go after them when they, when they want to run. All right, so love is patient, love pursues. Let's look at the next one here, 16 through 18. He says, but granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and I got the better of you by deceit. Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? So here, you hear again what the Corinthians are accusing Paul of. This is, again, like, they're awful, okay? They are, they're just, they're awful. They're accusing him because he didn't burden them, because he didn't require any money from them, and he says, I was crafty. So he, he, not like he was like, you know, making needlepoints or anything, but he did things 
to earn money. He was, he was being wise and smart, right? He was, and maybe he sold crafts at a fair or something. I don't know. But either way, he was, he was doing what he needed to do. And then they accuse him of, of deceiving them, of getting the better of them through lies. I don't know where they're twisting all this or where this is all coming from, but, but Paul's going, okay, guys, just look at the evidence here. Let's just look at this. Did I take advantage of you? <laughs> when I was with you, did I take advantage of you? No. Then he says, I, I sent Titus to you and the brother with him. We don't know who the brother is, but he sends these two guys to go and he's like, did they take advantage of you? No. And then, then he says, didn't they act the same way I did? Didn't they follow the same steps I did? Like he's, he's just going after this and going, guys, you're, you're deceived in this. You are, you're, and of course they're being fed these lies from the super apostles and they're believing them. But what Paul's trying to get across here is that love is not, uh, is not something that takes, it's something that gives. Right, Paul has been accused here of taking advantage of the Corinthians, but he says blatantly through the evidence of his entire interaction with them, he can point to the fact that he has not done so. And in fact, all he's done is given. He hasn't required a dime from them. He hasn't gone anywhere to, to uh, take advantage of them. He has just poured out his life for them. He's a giver because God's a giver, because love calls us to give, not take. And so we see that, of course, in John 3.16, and that's the classic verse. It's, there's many others like it, but that famous verse that we all are probably familiar with, that God so loved the world, he loved the world, that he gave his only son. Right, the connection between God sending Jesus into the world is that he loved the world. He loved it, so he gave to it. He loved us, so he gave Jesus to us. Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthians in, in a way that he's still having to defend himself here, right? He, he's, he's making that point through a defense, but the defense is clear. I didn't take advantage of you. You guys are accusing me of something that isn't true. But the positive flip on that is, He's, he's actually loving them because he's willing to give. He even, he gave, them, he gave them Titus too. And Titus was one of Paul's best guys, you know. And Paul had to invest that time to let Titus go for months and months. Um, and, and he sacrificed for them through and through. So love gives. Let's look at um, next, verse 19. Here's the fourth one. Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you. It's in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. He calls them beloved there, and I appreciate that because, you know, Paul gets a little fired up at these guys, and it can be really easy to forget that Paul actually does love them. They are his beloved they are loved by him. But here's in verse 19, right? He says, you guys have been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves, but in reality, all we've been doing is sharing Christ with you 
and we're sharing Christ. Look at the key word here as for your upbuilding. For your upbuilding. Here's, here's the f- uh, fourth, I think, thing here is that love builds up. Right? Paul, Paul is not using his platform to tear these people down. He's not using this platform to just tear into them and humiliate them and force them to move faster. He's just trying to upbuild them in the, in the grace of Christ. He's trying to upbuild them in the knowledge of God. He, he's, he's doing this ministry. And you know what? Building something that is of quality takes time, right? That goes back to the patience thing. And so he's upbuilding them through the teaching of Christ, but he knows that that's going to be a, a process. And so quickly here, we're going to go into the, the very next thing because I think this this leads right into it. In verse 20 and 21, um, Paul is not walking into this situation with a blindfold on. He knows what he's getting into. Look at what he says next. He says, For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you may not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and that I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. See, Paul knows that the Corinthians are not what they should be. He's hoping he'll see some progress. Clearly, he's hoping he'll see progress, but he's not holding his breath. He's going, okay, I'm going to come to you for a third time, and I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to find you the way I want to find you, and you're not going to find me the way you want to find me. Why? Because he's going to have to confront them about these things again. This is not the first rodeo Paul's had with these people, and he's, you read 1 Corinthians, and so much of 1 Corinthians is about really predominantly two sins um, in general categories. Uh, relational disunity is a huge theme in 1 Corinthians. The church was not unified at all. You had the rich people taking advantage of the poor people. You had this whole division, and Paul uh, has to call them out on a lot of that. The second is just honestly plain up gross sin. Gross sin. And like a dude's having a relationship with his stepmom and like it's messy it's messed up it's actually kind of like every other church but you know it's messy and so Paul here is dealing with those two things right he the first thing in verse 20 is here's what I'm afraid I'm going to find quarreling jealousy anger hostility slander gossip conceit and disorder all of those things have to do with relational unity all of them Right? Those are sins that come out as we are disunified in the church. You're going to see people fighting. You're going to see people jealous of what other people have. You're going to see people angry at each other, hostile. Uh, you're going to see people speaking badly of each other. That's what slander and gossip is. Uh, you're going to see pride in people's lives, and you're going to see disorder. Like nobody's going to be having it together, right? 
And so the church is going to be dysfunctional. And he, so he addresses all that. He's like, this is what I'm afraid I'm going to find when I get there. That's, go back to 1 Corinthians, and those are all the same problems. He's, he's like, yeah, you guys are probably still going to have these problems. <laughs> and then in verse 21, he goes on again to say, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented. The problem isn't inherently the sin. We, we are sinners. We're going to sin. The problem for Paul is not that they sinned earlier. It's, it's that they're not repentant of that sin. That's the problem, right? It's, you can't avoid being a fool because we are fools. We're sinners. We're going to make dumb, dumb decisions and we're going to do bad things but we can't sit in that. We can't be content in that. We've got to repent of those things. We've got to turn those things back to Jesus and say, you need to take this from my life and forgive me of it. And so he says, I'm afraid I'm going to find you guys who have sinned earlier, but have not repented of, and he lists out some more sins, impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality. So again, you got those two big sins in 1 Corinthians. You got relational disunity and you've got just gross sin. Just things that are impure, unright, wrong to be pursuing. And he says, I'm afraid I'm going to find all of that still there. So what's, what's the point here and how does this point us to love? Because is Paul just getting on their case about this? No, I think the key is this. Look at verse 21 again. He says, I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned prior and are not repentant. You see where Paul's love is in this? It's in the fact that he may have to mourn. And this is, this is something we don't think about a lot, but love does mourn. If we, did, if we were apathetic towards somebody, we would not mourn if they were making a train wreck of their life. But if we really care about someone, we're going to be sad when we see them derailing their life and ruining everything around them, right? You've all, you've all been sad about someone who has done something reckless, foolish, and unhelpful and ungodly. You've all felt that because you care about someone in your life and you've seen what the damage is, is doing. And this flows from the heart of Christ. Christ wept over Jerusalem, right? We see that in the Gospels. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, but why? Because the sins of his people were saddening him. Jesus is saddened and mourns over sin. Now, he also went to the cross to deal with sin and free us from sin. But there's always going to be that wrestle and struggle. And the Corinthians are a great example of that. These These are Christian people. Paul never says they're not Christians. Never, never says that. He never gets to a point where he's like, you guys don't believe in Jesus. No, he, he just also acknowledges that Christians can still be sinners. And that's not like, okay, we shouldn't just be content with that. We should mourn that when we see people in our lives who are so gripped by something and, and are train wrecking their life. And of course we should address it with them. We should 
do the loving thing and bring it up. But when you see someone just repeatedly and, and consistently refuse to repent, that leads you to sadness. It should. It should move your heart to go and pray for them, to seek their best. And, and that's what Paul's doing. He's, he's expressing that these are sins that are real in the church. He's probably going to show up for a third time and they're all still going to be there. And he's probably going to have to cry about that. That's, that's, that's where he's at. Because he loves them, though. Right? He, he, that's why. It's because he loves them. And that really is what this is all about. That gospel centrality leads us to love. Love is patient. It, it pursues. It gives. It builds. And yet it mourns. It does. All of this, though, ultimately flows from the heart of Christ, right? John, 1 John 4, 19 says that we love, both we, in, in the context, he's talking about loving God and loving people, but that we love both God and others because he first loved us. That's gospel doctrine leading to gospel culture. He loved us first, that's what we have, that's what the Bible teaches, that's what we believe. He's the pursuer of our hearts. He loves us first, but because he loved us first, we love. We need to get there. And that's where, again, um, Paul Tripp said it really well in another part of the, the book I was reading this week. He said, because we forget so quickly and because we fall into believing that we're deserving, and because we tend to think that we're more righteous and capable than we actually are, we all need to be given grace right at the very moment we're called to be a tool of grace in someone else's life. The God of grace is working his grace in everyone in the room. So 1 John 4.19 really is true. We love because he first loved us. And that's worth remembering. See, the, the, the point of love is that we pursue each other, that we help each other, that we, that we create a culture where people can be real with each other and actually extend grace in the moment to be an instrument of kindness and grace and understanding in somebody's life as Jesus would have us do. And that means we have to remember that he loved us first, so that's what empowers us to love. So with that said, I'll pray for us and then we'll We'll uh, sing a few songs in response today. And let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you that you have loved us first and that we, we don't come to you. Um, we don't initiate with you, Lord. You initiate with us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the empowerment that we need to live in a gospel culture and that the, the ways that we see love displayed in this passage would be true in our lives too. We need your help to do that and to get there. And so we pray for your help. We pray for your grace on our lives right now. And we ask that we would honor you as we sing to you, as we remember your, your sacrificial death for us, and as we give uh, to you today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.